Many years ago, when I lived in Chicago, if someone asked me, what comes to mind for you when you hear the term Calgary Stampede? I might have said, well, it's, it's like a rodeo or a cattle drive, I think, right? Something like that, I, because I had heard about it. But now, if someone were to ask me now, what comes to mind for you when you hear the term Calgary Stampede? That is such a loaded term. Because now, just kind of like a flood of experiences, images, memories flow through my mind. I mean, having lived in Calgary, having seen our city transformed every year into the Wild West, having mooched free stampede breakfast myself, having cheered on at the Chucks, having gotten sick on mini donuts, having lived it, I can now declare this is the greatest outdoor show on earth. Because now I know the stampede. Because I know the context, I know the color, the images of the stampede. Really, it's, it's a whole different level of meaning and understanding. And a similar dynamic actually can be true of our reading of God's word. Because scripture is just filled with loaded terms and phrases. For example, we can read a term or phrase in the New Testament and rightly think, well, I understand that, what that means, and we very well may to a certain level. But they can be so packed with meaning that as we understand the historical context, the color, the images, the background of the teaching, we can understand and enjoy it, actually, even far more deeply. And I think that's true, friends, of our focus and the text we're going to be looking at together today. Because we're continuing our teaching series that we called All In, where we just want to learn how do we journey with Jesus in serving others? And, and really, what does that even mean? And so today we're going to look primarily at two pretty stunning New Testament texts and see how they guide us in this invitation, this call from Jesus to serve. And really in it, I just want to be sure we truly understand what these passages are saying. And so we're going to start in the book of Acts. If you have your Bible or Bible app with you, turn there with me, and I'd encourage you to bring one or the other as we gather here. And it, just to remind you, the book of Acts was actually written by a follower of Jesus named Luke. He was a doctor in life. And in Acts chapter 1, Luke describes Jesus coming to his disciples, his closest followers, following his resurrection from the grave. And Jesus, in those times, he then teaches them more about the kingdom of God, tells them to stay in Jerusalem, and they're to wait there for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. So let's pick it up there. We're in Acts chapter 1. And as we hear this, remember, this is the word of God. And we read in verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom in Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. As they watched, open mouth. Jesus ascended to heaven. I'd like to, you, for you to do this, if you don't mind. 
In a moment, I want you to turn to the person next to you, and I want you to tell him or her what your favorite or maybe one of your favorite movies is. And again, it doesn't have to be intellectual, it doesn't have to be sophisticated, and I'd kind of prefer if it wasn't. I just want you to turn to someone next to you and, and tell them, name for them, one of your favorite movies that you've ever seen. All right? Go. Okay, the title can't be that long. All right. Okay, now I want to give you the name of one of my favorite movies. Definitely not sophisticated. Anyone remember a movie entitled Rocky? Anyone have that on your list? Kind of there. I really liked Rocky. I'd seen him many times. I just liked his courage. Just They poured out punishment on this guy. He was beaten, battered, and bloody, and the guy just didn't know how to quit. Ends up being the heavyweight champion of the world. Spoiler alert, too late. <laughs> and I've seen that ending over and over and over again. I saw Rocky II, liked it also, even liked Rocky III. I sat through Rocky IV, <laughs> same with Rocky V. By number 12, I really thought the series had lost a lot of steam. <laughs> and, and now the new Creed movies have kind of rejuvenated the story. But one of the problems with great movies is that nowadays, they always want to make a sequel. And the sequel is seldom as good as the original. That's a problem. And here's why I mention this. For three years, Jesus' disciples got to watch firsthand the greatest story ever told. And for three years, the disciples followed this man. He led them, inspired them, challenged them, taught them, confused them sometimes, sent them out on mission, celebrated with them, chastised them, and really mostly, he just loved them. And they'd never been loved like this. And then they watched him die on the cross. And they thought that was the end. And they were devastated like they'd never been devastated before. And then they saw him <laughs> risen from the grave. They saw him raised from the dead. Saw him resurrected, not just a ghost that kind of lived on, but a resurrection, a, a new life that was really the first taste of God's eventual redemption, renewal of all of creation. And they, they were understandably ecstatic beyond their wildest hopes. And now they can't wait to see what's gonna next, see what's gonna happen next. Wow. <laughs> How is he going to top this? What's the sequel to this going to be? And the only thing that they could think of that would be a fitting sequel would be, well, Jesus, now you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel, right? You're going to blast the Romans. You're going to cut down Caesar to size. You're going to seize the throne. You're going to make Israel the envy of every other nation on earth, right? That's it, Jesus. And kind of you can picture at this point, Jesus just shaking his head. <laughs> because for three years, he, he'd been trying to teach the world, teach anyone who'd been willing to listen about the true nature of the kingdom of God. 
that it was not a political structure, that it, it couldn't come through coercion. It, it's not a program that could be manipulated by human policies or legislation. And these are Jesus' closest, best-trained disciples, and they still don't get it. I don't know if you had this, but when I was in primary school, teachers would put you into reading groups based on your ability. And they wouldn't say they were doing that, but you could always tell how well you were doing by the animal name that your group got. Because <laughs> there'd be like the eagle group, then the robin group, then there'd be like the pigeon group. And the disciples here, they were asking a pigeon question. Now finally you're going to blast the Romans. Now you're going to restore the kingdom, right Jesus? So you can really, you can imagine Jesus shaking his head and thinking, wow, I hope the Holy Spirit can do more with you guys than I have over the last three years. And what Jesus says to them is, it's not for you to know the times or dates that the Father set by his own authority. In other words, don't get distracted by pointless speculation. I mean, Jesus was really clear with his friends. What's the projected date of my return? Not for you to know. In fact, we read in the Gospels, Jesus said, I don't even know the time of my second coming. So don't get consumed with kind of charting out, debating projected timetables, as some in our days seem prone to do. Don't get caught up in just kind of pointless speculation. So the question still remains. Okay, so what is the second act going to be? What's the sequel? And, and one thing the disciples did think they knew for sure. Okay, whatever is coming next, Jesus is going to lead us in it. We're going to have ringside seats to this. We're going to be in the front row of the audience, just like we've been over the last three years, because Jesus is a man, and now he's a man on a mission. All right, so now Jesus, what's the sequel? What's the second act? And imagine their response when Jesus says, it's you. It's you. You will be my witnesses. Jesus says, here's what's going to happen. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, then in Judea, and then in Samaria. And that would have gotten their attention. Because if you recall, at that time, the Samaritans were viewed as kind of half-breeds at best. They didn't believe in the right kind of God. They didn't embrace all of the scriptures. I'm going to send you to Samaria. And from there, you're going to go to the ends of the earth. Because it's you guys. You are the sequel. And it's not just you as individuals. It's, it's what you're going to do together. I mean, it's the church. It's those who will join with you on this walk of faith. It's going to be the whole church doing this. And you can kind of try to imagine how let down they feel. The church, us, <laughs> these goofy, kind of messed up, flawed, unstable, dysfunctional, co-enabling, doubt-infested, hard-to-get-along-with-spiritual-second-stringers? This is your big idea, Jesus? One of my favorite definitions of leadership comes from Harvard professor Ron Heifetz. He puts it this way. Leadership is disappointing people at a rate they can stand. <laughs> Isn't that good? 
That's often what Jesus does. Because he has a greater dream for us. He has a greater appointment for us than we even have for ourselves. So he'll often disappoint us at a rate we can stand. So that we'll be led into, we'll be ready for something grander. That's what he does now. That's the big idea. He's not coming to restore his kingdom. He's not going to tell you when the end times are coming. Okay, I'm not telling you when my second return is going to be. What I want, Jesus says, I want for you to go back to Jerusalem. You know the place where they killed me, where they're waiting right now to throw you in prison? I want you to go there. And I want you to just hang around for a while because I'm leaving. See ya. And that was it. The big idea, the instrument of this whole redemptive kingdom of God thing is you. You're the sequel. And we ask the question, why did he do this? Why does this odd, little, kind of messy group, the church, matter so much in this? And I, I think we could say it's both a very simple thing and it's something you and I will never fully understand because God is so much wiser than we are. Here it is. Let's hear it. God's plan to bring his redemptive message and kingdom to the human race is the church. It's not a corporation, not a nation, not a university, not an economic or political system as influential as all those can be. It's just a real simple plan. He formed his church and he said to them, you, you're it. And now it's Calgary. And now it's 2018. And hear this. Now it's us. So in light of that reality, I want to look at a second text today. A stunning teaching of Jesus in the Gospel of John. Just turn to the left a bit in John 14, where Jesus speaks specifically about the implications of this reality. And really, I can hardly believe that anyone would read the words of Jesus here without thinking in some way, okay, Jesus couldn't mean what he says here. So let's look at this. John 14, verse 11. Jesus said, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father's in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. That's not the questionable part. It's this, verse 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I'm going to the Father. I mean, if we take Scripture seriously, we, I think, naturally want to ask, okay, if, if that's what Jesus promised, then why don't we seem to be doing what Jesus did? I mean, the works that Jesus did were amazing. He walked on water, he healed the blind, he made the lame to walk, he even raised the dead, right? I mean, if Jesus meant what he said here, then we should be able to do the things that Jesus did. And not only that, he, he said we will do greater works than what he did. I mean, I would guess that most of us have seen different kinds of miracle workers on TV or real life who have reportedly healed people, I, I would guess. And you kind of wonder with those, okay, how much of that is authentic? 
And I want you to know, I believe healing can take place today. I think many of you do too. And many of us might know people who have been miraculously healed by God's grace and power, by the intervention of God in really time and space and history. I believe in healing today. But I have never known anyone who could match these works of Jesus. But that's what he seems to say. See the work that I'm doing. Well, what I'm doing, you'll be able to do. And then he adds verse 12. And greater works than these will he do because I'm going to the Father. Okay, now when you hear that, have any of you thought, okay, we've been trained in this. Perhaps the original Greek word that we translate as works means something else. Well, that Greek word works in that verse is a Greek word, ergon. You want to say it with me? Okay, what that actually means if you translate it is works, deeds, toil. In fact, Jesus used that word in the Greek repeatedly in Gospel of John to describe his works, his ministry. All right, so that doesn't explain it. Well, what about the context of Jesus' words here? I mean, the context of Jesus' words in John 14 actually are intriguing. When Jesus gives this promise, he had just washed the disciples' feet at the Last Supper. The story we looked at last weekend, right? That's the setting. Judas had just head out to betray him. Peter's denial of Christ had been predicted, and Jesus had been trying to get his disciples to understand he was going to die, and they just couldn't grasp it. And then these crowds that had been flocking to Jesus we're soon going to be shouting for him to be crucified. So therefore, in this passage, Jesus had been telling his disciples, you have the promise of a place in heaven. You have access to the Father and me in prayer. You will receive the Holy Spirit, and I'm going to return again. And while I'm away, he says this, you're going to do greater works than even I have done. I mean, Jesus wanted his disciples to know. I mean, things were going to definitely radically change for them, but it was going to be for the better. So Jesus' promise here in John 14 was intended to be just a great encouragement to them. But are, are we doing greater works than Jesus? I mean, I think two of the most common responses you'd receive if, if you were to ask other believers why it doesn't appear that we're doing greater works in Jesus. I, I think the most common responses would either be for one, it's because we don't have enough faith. Okay, but the problem with that answer is that Jesus makes absolutely no mention of the level of our faith here, right? There's no conditional clause in this verse. And I think a second common response people might give to that question would be, well, Jesus wasn't referring here in John 14 to all believers. I mean, they might say here, he was just referring to what those 12 disciples would do. Or some would add, he was referring to kind of modern day apostles and prophets that are gonna rise up or perhaps already have risen up to fulfill this promise of Jesus. And that, they would say, will be one of the signs that the end of time is coming. Okay, with that in mind, let's look again at verse 12. And Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, what? Whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do. I mean, there is nothing in Jesus' words here that indicates this is only going to be true of a select few of his followers. In fact, Jesus seems to be clearly saying, 
whoever believes in me is going to be part of this. Isn't that what it says? So I think the problem really is this. I think we are so focused on, impressed with the power Christ displays, that we fail to see that his works were not usually intended to declare his power. Rather, they were expressed to declare either his love and along with it, that he was sent by God. I mean, what Jesus had been doing in his ministry included works of incredible humility and serving as well. He washed the disciples' feet right along with miraculous signs, but we're drawn to the miraculous signs. But we need to remember that Jesus' primary purpose in coming was not to declare to us the power of God. I mean, above all, Jesus came to declare and manifest the love of God so that by that love, people would know that Jesus was sent by God. That's what scripture says again and again. In fact, listen to John in his first epistle. This is 1 John 4, 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. How? That God sent his only son into the world. What did Jesus' presence, his authority, his power, his ministry declare? Well, it did this. It made manifest the love of God right among us. That's what Jesus' works were firstly about. In fact, just for example, look at the first miracle of Jesus at the Cana feast. Jesus arrives with his disciples at this wedding feast in Cana. And, and they're about halfway through this thing, which weddings at that time, feasts lasted about a week long. And they were running out of wine. The father was distraught, didn't know what happened. He thought he had enough wine. The young bride was in tears. The new husband was embarrassed. They don't know what to do. And again, understand the context. In the ancient world, to run out of wine in the middle of that kind of feast was an enormous public disgrace. So we know the story. Mary goes over to Jesus, nudges him, and says, do something. And Jesus says, what have I to do with thee, woman? That's what the King James says, at least. Which actually is just an ancient way of saying, oh, please, Mom, not now. <laughs> I mean, Jesus had never performed a miracle. But as mother's urging, he performs one right here. He calls for them to bring over these kind of massive, big ceremonial containers, these cisterns, has them fill them with water, and he turns the water into wine. And understand, not primarily to show his power, but to express his love. In a very practical way to people who are in a difficult situation. And let's remember in this, this is what the gospel, this is what the good news is about. The gospel is about not the power of God. That is so true. It is about the love of God. That's what it's about. And friends, therefore, we read John 14, and we think perhaps we can't duplicate all the power of Jesus. I, I haven't walked on water lately. I, I have never raised someone from the grave. But understand this. All believers do have, all believers, the power and capacity and opportunity to express the love of Jesus. And understand, when it comes to the bottom line, Jesus was more committed to expressing love than showing his power. 
And as we saw last weekend, in Scripture, you cannot separate loving from serving. A member of our church family, I'll, I'll call him Steve, shared with me some time ago that he got a letter in his mailbox and saw that it was actually addressed to his neighbor. So he went over to his neighbor, knocked on the door. The neighbor opens the door, and tears are flowing down his face. The neighbor was home alone, and he shared they had just received word of the tragic death of a close family member. And Steve there just reached out and embraced him. And as he wept, Eventually, the neighbor said this, this isn't just a coincidence that you stopped by at this moment. That's what the neighbor said. And maybe you want to say, okay, you're not going to compare that with Jesus walking on water. And no, I'm not. For a really obvious reason. If Jesus were to make the decision, which is the greater work, walking on water or expressing God's love to a neighbor in the middle of their deep grief and pain. What do you think Jesus would consider the greater work? Really, in that. Walking on water or serving that person in deep need. Yeah, and maybe in case you're not convinced about this, look at Jesus' teaching back in John. Just before, just before Jesus talked to his disciples about them doing greater works, what did Jesus just said? Look at chapter 13, verse 34. Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you. This is what it's all about. Love one another. Just as I've loved you, served you, you also need to love. You need to serve one another. And by this, all people will know that you are my disciples. If you have power. <laughs> no. If you have love for one another. That will be the sign. That will be the marker, Jesus says. So we read this and realize we might not be able to duplicate all the power acts of God in Jesus Christ. But every time we perform an act of love, an act of serving in Jesus' name, we're imitating Jesus. And even in that act, we are declaring by our actions, Jesus was sent by God. Even in the simplest actions. A pastor I know shared this story. I, this pastor and a coworker of his named John were at a, just a tiny one-room airport waiting to catch a commuter flight to head home. And while they were waiting, there was an elderly woman also sitting in the waiting area. And she had just flown in. She was just waiting to be picked up. And she looked mean and she looked unhappy. And John felt this pull. Maybe you could call it a leading to reach out to her, to be kind to her. So he sat down, he just started joking with her. And he said it was hard to even get a smile out of her. But finally, a grin came to her face. And he said when that wall came down, just to smile, she started laughing, and laughing convulsively. In fact, she started laughing so hard, they were afraid she was going to pass out. And finally she goes, stop, stop. And, and the others in that little airport, there were four or five guys there gathered around as well. They just had this great time just enjoying and laughing with this elderly woman. And this woman's ride finally arrived. She got up, walked out to her ride, and they saw her drive away. And the pastor and John had to wait a while for their flight. And while they were waiting there, a while later, they look out the airport window, and they see this lady's car coming back up the drive. The old lady gets out of the car, shuffles back in the airport, and she comes up to them and says, 
Mister, you couldn't have possibly known this, but it was three years ago today that my husband of 54 years died. And I didn't realize it until I was halfway home. But today is the first day since then that I've been able to laugh. And I wanted to come back and just thank you. And that is a really simple expression of love. But friends, understand, it can be as simple as an expression as that. I mean, Jesus did perform miracles, and I believe he still does. But there's something even greater than miracles that God has called us to do. He's called us to love, to serve others. And understand, when we do those things, those acts of love, those acts of serving, they are greater than the work that Jesus did when he walked on water. And there's an additional dimension to Jesus' words in John 14. One writer puts it this way. When Jesus was here in the flesh, he was only able to look into the eyes of one person at a time, only able to express love personally to one person at a time. But now, by his Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, who is within each who has turned in faith to follow Jesus. Now, if then hundreds and hundreds of us go out Monday morning and each of us performs one act of love and serving in Christ's name, then it truly can be said. In fact, you can hear Jesus uttering these words. The work that I did, you are doing. And you are doing it greater than I did it because hundreds, thousands are greater than one. I could only love and serve one person face to face at a time. But there are hundreds of you and each of you, at any given moment, you can love and serve someone intimately and powerfully in my name. Friends, understand the idea in this is that we just decide we're going to live by the Spirit, live this way. This isn't firstly or primarily about some new church program we need to initiate. It is about us individually and corporately saying, by God's grace, we are choosing to live day by day this way. So could the Holy Spirit be saying to us? Sometimes people are just beat up. Sometimes they're wounded. Sometimes they're sick in their hearts. Sometimes they're lame in their spirits. And so you, you can be a community of healing to bandage up the broken. You can attend to the bruised. You can be a community where those who are broken and their life isn't working, can come and be made whole in Christ, in my community. You can be that. So whatever you do, don't just stand there and do nothing. Because, understand, Jesus still says, we heard it in Acts 1 and John 14. Beloved, you are it. You are the sequel. You are God's plan. So next weekend, we're going to get even more specific in how we live these incredible realities out. We're going to get very practical about, about this. So I encourage you to be here next weekend. All right? And let's pray to God and ask him to guide us in this week. Let's pray together. And Father, we come with thanksgiving 
at the wonder that you would choose to use us to express Christ. And so I pray, Father, that by your spirit within us, you would give us both eyes to see, ears to hear of opportunities where we can express Jesus in this week we're heading into. And Father, along with that, I pray you would give us a boldness to battle against what our own flesh or inadequacy or fear or the enemy would try to convince us not to do. I pray you would give us boldness to express Jesus. May it be so that even as Jesus looks on this week, he would say, oh, I, I love seeing my people doing greater works than I did. Oh, Father, may it be so, so that you would be glorified and Jesus would be exalted. We pray this in the authority of his name. And again, all God's people say, amen.